You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. What a special Sunday, hey? Wow. Well, this morning, um, we're continuing in our series on prayer, and we are talking about prayer and fasting. How many of you are excited for that? All right. Well, I actually spoke on this topic in the summer as well, and at the time I remember thinking, man, I have so much to say, I wish I could have two sermons to preach on prayer and fasting. Well, here we are today, me hoping I wish I had three sermons on prayer and fasting, because I had to cut quite a bit to fit this into half an hour. So anyways, here we go. Let me tell you, fasting has been quite a journey for me. Uh, I've learned some things the hard way about fasting. I remember uh, when I first tried fasting in my undergrad years of university, uh, I would fast on Mondays each week and all was going, you know, fine. And then I remember the semester changed and I had like a weightlifting and conditioning class on Mondays. So I was like, all right, well, we're just going to like double it up. You know, I'm really going to just like live into 1 Timothy 4.8 for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So let's get jacked physically and spiritually on Mondays. That was like kind of my mantra going in, right? Well, Monday fun day, not so much. Uh, Let's just say that weightlifting class, that first one didn't go so well. Remember uh, just exerting myself, going pale, uh, almost fainting, nearly throwing up. So yeah, we changed it up pretty quick after that. Um, but prayer or prayer and fasting, it's, uh, it's humbling. I remember as well, not too long ago, I, I tried to fast for a little bit longer than I usually do. And I remember getting up from my bed in the morning when my alarm went off and instantly feeling like sweaty, overheating, uh, head was kind of dizzy, getting on my, my knees on, onto like my, my belly and literally like army crawling my way out of my bedroom, down the hallway, into the kitchen, opening up the fridge door, and just grabbing a bunch of baby tomatoes. Why baby tomatoes? I don't know. Uh, I think your body really knows what it needs when it's deprived. Uh, But all this to say, um, now that I've told you how unpleasant fasting can be, who's ready to pray and fast? Well, let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for... Uh, We thank you for prayer and fasting, for this spiritual discipline that you've given us to uh, grow in intimacy with you and to worship you, to be formed. Um, And we know that there's a a power in prayer and fasting. And so we just pray that, Lord, uh, you would be magnified this morning, that your words would be many and mine would be few. So help us, Lord, to hear what it is you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, what is fasting? Uh, Really simply, it's setting aside time to refrain from eating food. So while we might take uh, time to refrain from things like social media or TV to give space to God, which is really good, uh, technically speaking, these would fall more under the category of abstinence than true biblical fasting. But these are great things to do anyways, and in the coming weeks, as we lead up to Lent, uh, we're going to be talking more about what we can surrender, what we can give up uh, to make more space for God, to prepare our hearts uh, as we journey towards Easter. 
And so we would encourage you to consider giving up certain things, not just potentially food or desserts and things like that, but uh, expanding the scope of that. But um, for today, uh, fasting as it relates to food, it's, it's a bit of an obscure discipline, one that sadly we don't hear a lot about often. But this hasn't been the case for most of church history. You see, in the early church, Christians fasted twice a week until sundown on Wednesdays and Fridays. And for nearly all of church history, this is just what Christians did. And if you look beyond the Western church, you'll see a church that fasts. North America is one of the few places on the planet that has largely abandoned this ancient practice of discipleship to Jesus. And the reason why fasting is so widely embraced by the church around the globe and throughout history is because Jesus actually expects his disciples to fast. When Jesus teaches about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, as we're about to read, he starts by saying, when you fast, not if you fast. He's assuming that his followers will fast. But I don't want you to feel bad or guilty if you haven't fasted before or if this isn't like a regular practice in your life. But I do hope that by the end of this sermon, um, you're inspired to pray and fast and understand the purpose behind it. But if you fasted before, you know it's hard. Like it's not exactly glamorous. Like if you fasted before, you know like you're, you're counting down the hours until it's dinner time. Uh, you know, you hear people say they're hungry, you know, in the office or whatever, and you're like, man, you have no idea. Uh, you're driving on your way home, you're seeing like every restaurant and fast food joint, you're like, man, I just need to like pop in. And then you remember, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to get fast food, I'm supposed to fast from food. Um, everything starts looking appetizing, right? Like meat starts looking good for me, and I'm a vegetarian. Um, it's, it's not an easy discipline, but I will say for myself, there aren't many other things that have had a deeper spiritual impact on me than fasting. It shapes you, and it reminds you of your weakness and your need for God. I think we need to be reminded of that uh, continually, how much I desperately need Jesus. So my hope is that we can reclaim this neglected spiritual practice within our, our own church, and that starts with recapturing the purpose behind fasting. So why do we fast? Well, throughout scripture, we see fasting done as part of repentance, decision-making, asking God to act in matters of protection and justice. But this morning, I wanna focus on three main purposes. Fasting is number one, an act of worship. Number two, fasting forms us. And thirdly, fasting has power. So to sum it up in one sentence, the point that I want you to hear today is that fasting is an act of worship unto God for the good of yourself and for others. And so stand with me as we read from uh, God's word in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, and when you fast, there's that phrase, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, you guys may take a seat. Have you ever tried to appear spiritual to impress others? 
you know, throw in some eloquent language in your public prayers, do an act of kindness uh, in the presence of someone who you want validation from, maybe put your hands up in worship uh, so the cute guy or girl behind you notices and thinks, wow, like what a godly man or woman. Maybe post photos of uh, your Bible open, your hands folded on social media. Just me? (laughs) Kidding. Those are awkward questions because it's too real, isn't it? Well, this is what Jesus has been calling out in Matthew 6. In verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he names specific examples of how this is done. Don't blow a trumpet when you give to the needy. Don't pray just for the attention of others. And right here in our text this morning, don't fast to be recognized by others. Why? Because when we do each of those good things with the wrong motive, we're stealing glory from God. We're all guilty of being glory thieves at times. Giving to the needy is a good thing. Praying is a good thing. Fasting is a good thing. But when we do it to be noticed by others, we're seeking worship for ourselves. Fasting isn't for our own glory. It's for the glory of God. Fasting is an act of worship unto God, not an act meant to gain approval from others. And Jesus says that those who fast just to be recognized by others have received their reward in full. That human praise will be their only reward. They're getting nothing more than that. But those who fast as an act of worship to God, Jesus says they'll be rewarded by their Father who sees in secret. And at the very least, this reward is more of God himself. I can promise you that whatever reward your Father has for you, it's a lot better than whatever man can give you. But how exactly is is fasting an act of worship? Like we can wrap our minds around, you know, giving of our finances and our resources, how that's like worshiping God with what we have. We can understand how like giving of our time and serving, surrendering that is, is an act of worship, but like not eating food, like how is that worship? Well, fasting is a way of worshiping and praying with our bodies. When we fast, we're saying, God, I want you to sustain me. I know that you satisfy. Fasting allows us to experience Jesus as the bread of life. That's how he identifies himself. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about using our bodies as vessels for worship. In Romans 12:1. he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so Paul's saying that because we've received grace and mercy and forgiveness for our sins, the only proper response is to give our entire lives for God's glory as an act of worship in response, in gratitude, and that includes our bodies. We surrender our sexuality to God, what we put in our bodies, and what we do with them. And one way we can worship with our bodies is through fasting. Now, let me go on a short rabbit trail about a theology of the body. Uh, One of the primary ideas that early Christianity fought against was Gnosticism. How many of you have heard of Gnosticism? Okay. Well, a Gnostic understanding of the body 
is that it was really just like a prison for the soul. That once you died, your soul was released from captivity from this body prison. And so what mattered to the Gnostics was not the body, but the soul. And for them, there was no connection between the body and the soul. So you could do whatever you wanted with the body because it had little value and it had no consequence on your soul. You can see where this is going, can't you? If the body has no value or connection to who I am as a person, I can treat it however I want. From boundaryless sex, to mutilating and harming it, to abusing it with substances. Man, it's, it's a good thing our culture isn't like that anymore, hey? But in all honesty, we've elevated the mind and our emotions above the body. We shun the body as though it has no bearing on who we are. And Paul addresses this very thinking in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, when he confronts the idea that we can do whatever we please with our bodies. He says, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies are precious gifts from a good God. And they're part of who we are and should be loved, not treated with disdain. Like, did you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a home for the Spirit of God to dwell in? Like, you know how God used to dwell in, a, in, in the Holy of Holies within a physical temple in the Old Testament, and the priest would go in there on behalf of the people, and if he hadn't repented of his sin and gone through certain uh, cleansing rituals, like, he'd die in the presence of God? Well, according to that same passage in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Like, doesn't that just blow your mind and inspire you to want to honor and worship God with the temple of your body? I think we know that Gnosticism doesn't align with reality. What we do with our bodies does affect our souls. It does have an emotional impact on us. We often carry the deepest regrets for the things we've done with our bodies, myself included. The Christian worldview says that we are psychosomatic beings. That means that we are body, mind, and spirit. They're all connected, and it's beautiful. So what does this have to do with fasting as worship? Well, for one, it means that fasting isn't meant to be self-flagellation, where we just punish ourselves, um, punish and, and make our bodies suffer to please God. Like, that's not it at all. Like, that's more Gnostic thinking. But what it means to worship God with our bodies is that we offer them to him saying, Father, you've given me this amazing blessing of a body and I wanna honor you with it. I'll worship you through my sexuality, through what I put in my body and when I eat and when I fast, remembering that you are my provider, the one who sustains my life. People can fast for all sorts of reasons, for mental clarity, to lose weight, for other health reasons, but that's not the reason we fast. We fast for God, to worship him. And God actually seems to care about this. We learn in Zechariah 7, four to five, this is what the prophet Zechariah says. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? It's possible to fast and not worship God. But as we do it, we're worshiping him. It's about the heart. 
And so when we fast, we surrender to God in worship, offering our bodies to be used for his glory. Now, although fasting isn't for our own glory, it is for our good. And the reason for that is because it forms us to be more like Jesus. It's one of our values, to be formed in his image. Now, we tend to think that spiritual formation takes place through the mind, and it does, but it also happens through our bodies. How so? It's because fasting reveals. It reveals what's going on in our souls. Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. How many of you are ready to fast now? <laughs> the things that control us. This can be scary territory, right? We're brought face to face with our idols and our temptations when we fast. Fasting reveals more than just sinful behaviors. It reveals what's going on in our souls so that we can invite the Spirit of God to do his work of transformation. Our sinful behaviors are often just symptoms of deeper soul wounds and core lies that we believe about ourselves. And beneath these behaviors are entire complexes that we operate out of. And fasting can show us some of this and show us where we're actually like putting our identity. And we see this in the temptation narrative of Jesus in the Gospels. After Jesus' baptism where the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and nights for what purpose? To be tempted by the devil, Matthew 4.1. And if it's, as if it's not bad enough to be in the desert 40 days and nights with the devil as your only companion, but Jesus fasted this whole time too. Like, isn't that just crazy? So after Jesus' identity is affirmed by his Father, the devil tempts Jesus and tries to bring an assault against his identity. Christian psychologist David Benner shows that Jesus was tempted to put his identity in three things other than his sonship, or rather to prove his sonship in three primary ways. The devil tells Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. After 40 days of fasting, that would be tempting. This is the temptation to power, that you are what you do. How many of us believe the performance lie that our worth is based on what we can accomplish and how well we can perform? This is a lie. But Jesus, full of the Spirit, says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So next, the devil takes him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and says, if you are the son of God, angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the temptation to prestige, that you are what others think about you or say about you. How many of us reduce our worth to what others think and say about us? This is the one that I'm most prone to out of the three. But this too is a lie. And Jesus responds, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, the devil takes him to a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the temptation to possessions, that you are what you have. How many of us believe that our worth is found in how much money and stuff we have? We even speak about things in this way, like, oh, how much is he or she worth in terms of assets, right? This, again, is a lie. The issue of our worth was settled at the cross. 
Jesus responds, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil flees. But part of Jesus' fight against the enemy was fasting. Now, at first glance, like this almost doesn't make sense. Because when you fast, you can be more prone to give in to temptation. Right? Like you're hangry. (laughs) You're more irritable. You're quicker with your temper. Um, And so it's like, man, like, that sounds like the last thing I should be doing for my spiritual formation. It reprioritizes our deepest desires of our souls above the fleeting desires of the body. How does this happen? It's by drawing on the power of God. You realize your weakness and your need for God pretty quick when you fast. And it's in our weakness that Christ's power is made what? Perfect. Fasting is a practice that reminds us of our weakness and our dependence on God. How countercultural. Fasting is for our good as it forms us to be more like Jesus. Now, one other way that uh, we're formed through fasting that I briefly want to touch on is by growing in our love and our empathy for the poor. The poor are close to God's heart. We see this throughout the scriptures. And in Galatians 2.10, we see that the apostle Paul, he's instructed to remember the poor as he begins his ministry. Well, man, what better way to actively remember the poor than to have a sacrificial practice that helps us to put ourselves in the shoes of those who struggle with food insecurity. St. Gregory of Nyssa said, give to the hungry what you deny your own appetite. Like our fasting forms us and we can, we can channel it and purpose it towards a cause, praying for the poor. But practically speaking, some of the ways that we can do this to stand with the poor, we can give whatever amount of money we would normally spend on our meals or our groceries for that day and give it towards a charity or an initiative that provides those basic needs. Secondly, we could serve at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter. Many of you did this last month as we had the temporary winter shelter. I know there was a lot of interesting, cool stories that came out of that. And as we fast, we pray for those who are in need. And we can even break our fast by eating a simple meal of of just rice and beans. This is a meal that a large population of the world lives on day to day. And so this is a way that we can stand with the poor as we fast and remember them, pray for them. So fasting is for the benefit of others. We can pray and fast for the poor, and we can pray and fast for others in situations that are in need of breakthrough. We often hear the voice of God with greater clarity when we fast. And fasting also seems to aid in our being heard by God as well. Did we not just hear the amazing testimony of John, our brother, this morning? Like God heard the prayers of his people. And I know that some of you fasted as well. John, I'm so glad you're back. You're such a gift to our church, to me personally. It's amazing to see you back up worshiping on stage and leading us in that. Glory to God. There's a mystery in prayer and fasting, and it isn't a magic bullet or a formula to manipulate God as if we could do that, 
But we cannot escape the scriptural reality that when we couple prayer with fasting, there's a potency, a power that accesses heaven and touches earth. Allow me to point you to a couple passages that demonstrate that when God's people pray and fast, he responds. Breakthrough happens that could not otherwise be had. In Judges chapter 20, Yahweh turns the tables for the people of Israel as they're engaged in battle with the tribe of Benjamin. And after a night of weeping, sacrifice, and fasting, he delivers them into their hands. In 1 Samuel 7, we see Israel repent, turn toward God, and fast. The next day, their enemies, the Philistines, are defeated. While in exile, after hearing about the destroyed state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah prays and fasts, repents on behalf of Israel, asks the Lord for favor from King Artaxerxes, who's ruling. And he's then granted permission by this enemy king to return to Jerusalem and begin building the city walls. And there's more examples, but one more that I'll name. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples come to Jesus after encountering a boy who's, uh, who has an unclean spirit. And they tell Jesus they can't cast it out. And Jesus responds by saying, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Fasting has power. Now in 1959, there's a a Welsh minister, you may have heard of him, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He looked at this passage in Mark 9 and saw parallels to the state of the culture and the church of his day. He saw the young boy as representing the church and the demon as the cultural idols of the secular age and how much of that had seeped into the church. And he saw the church trying to exercise the demon of post-Christianity with human methods rather than the power of God. And this is what he said. He said, we must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in all our slickness. We've got to realize that however great this kind is, the power of God is infinitely greater. That what we need is not more knowledge, more understanding, more apologetics, more reconciliation of philosophy and science and religion and all modern techniques. No, we need a power that can enter into the souls of men and humble them and then make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. Man, it sure feels like we're in a similar age. Like, what are we up against today? What is this kind for us? I've already talked about how we live in a culture that has a disdain for the body that manifests itself in numerous ways. But we also find ourselves in a context where truth is relative. We look inward to find meaning rather than receiving our identity and our purpose from our Father who loves us and who has a better purpose than we can ever dream up. The anxiety and overwhelm that people feel just seems to be getting worse and worse. And we live in a fast-paced city where busyness and exhaustion are the norm. There just seems to be a darkness. And many people are asking the question, what am I here for? Is there more to life than this? And all of this just points to a city and a people in need of the power of God. More methods and strategies aren't going to bring change. Nothing will except for the power of the Holy Spirit. So what if now is the time to pray and fast for God to move in our city, for him to tear down strongholds and bring his kingdom in power, for people to turn from the things that they've put their identity in, for them to turn from the things that have left them feeling empty and thirsty and hungry and to turn to him who is the bread of life and living water and who can sustain and uphold and satisfy. 
The question is, are we desperate for him? Will we pray and fast? When we pray and fast, we're showing that we have skin in the game. We're saying, I'm willing to have things come at a cost to myself for you to intervene, God. It shows our desperation, our hunger for him to act as we realize our weakness and we call upon his strength. Now, I could keep going, but we're running out of time here. Now, if you're in, if you see this and you're like, okay, I want to worship God through my body. I want to be shaped as a byproduct of fasting. I see the need of the people around me. I want to fast. I want to pray. Just have a few practical tips for you. Christianity is not simply a faith consisting of teaching and knowledge, but it's a faith learned through practice as well. Prayer and fasting are things that we learn by doing. So first tip is just start small. If you haven't fasted before, I recommend just fast one meal, um, drinking water in between and praying, of course, in between that time as well. If you fasted before, you want to make it a regular rhythm, I'd suggest fast two meals where you fast from maybe after dinner one night through to dinner the next night you break your fast. Um, I will give a caution though, if you have an unhealthy relationship with food, particularly if you struggle with an eating disorder, um, you probably shouldn't engage in fasting just yet until there's been some redemption and, and healing in this area of your life, it just wouldn't be wise. Um, and also, if you're pregnant or have other health issues that would make fasting dangerous, don't fast. Secondly, pray and fast in community. It's always so much easier to do this uh, with other people. Um, and so, many of you are in community groups. This is the practice that we're going to encourage groups to try this week, where maybe as a group, you fast from after dinner one night through to dinner the next night, and you do a potluck dinner, and you break your fast that way. Thirdly, drink lots of water. I mean, that one's pretty obvious, but we're going we're gonna to get thirsty, so stay hydrated. And fourth, expect the body to push back. You're going to feel some hunger pains, uh, but don't worry. You're not starving. Um, it's just that the stomach is used to telling your body um, that you normally eat at certain times. So keep pushing through, but do listen to your body, right? If you're getting, like, crazy headaches and you're feeling dizzy, like... Don't feel like you have to keep pushing through. Again, we want, to, want you to feel like you can engage with this at the pace that makes sense to you. Move slower, don't exercise, right? Learn from me. Uh, take time to rest. And when you end your fast, start again small uh, because the stomach is kind of shrunken a little bit. So don't go have like a big keg steak dinner and potatoes and everything. And finally, have grace for yourself in all of this. Um, have grace for yourself. Right? With any new spiritual discipline, it's going to take time. Okay, well, I'm going to invite the band up at this point, and um, we're, funny enough, going to be taking communion uh, now. And so we're going to be eating bread and, and drink juice together, and we do this in remembrance of Christ's death for us, where he suffered on the cross so that we may live. We remember his body given for us through the bread, and we remember his blood shed for us through the juice. These are symbols. In Christ, we've been forgiven of our sin. And communion is an opportunity to reflect on his loving sacrifice and offer ourselves to him in response. I'll also invite up the um, communion ushers at this time too. But if you call yourself a follower of Christ, we invite you to the table. 
But this isn't a meal meant to keep people out. It's, it's, it's a meal meant to welcome sinners in. This was all of Jesus' ministry, ministering to the broken and the, those who knew they were sinners and needed a savior. And so if you wanna take communion for the first time as a way of saying, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place for my sin, that you rose again, that I might have life, that I could be forgiven, then we would welcome you to partake in this meal with us. But if you're not there yet, this won't mean much to you, so you can just sit this one out. But let me pray. Hell, Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life and that you gave yourself for us. Lord, that you died in our place for our sin. You rose again. We thank you for your body that was given, your blood that was shed. God, you willingly gave yourself up. You receive these elements with gratitude, remembering, Lord, that we don't need to prove ourselves. God, that we don't have to earn your grace or your love. God, we don't have to perform. God, we don't have to put our identity in what others think of us because you already love us and you like us. God, we don't have to put our identity in our possessions because we have everything. Lord, as we learned last week in David's sermon, Lord, everything that you have, we're heirs to that. And God, I just pray that uh, this morning, for those who are maybe struggling with, with identity, that you would just invade their hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would just show them how precious they are to you. You would show them just how immensely valuable they are, that God, they cannot... They cannot gain more love from you than they already have, and they'll never be, they, they won't be loved less than they already are. Lord, that you're already maxed out on love for us. And so God, I just pray that you would minister to my brothers and sisters here. Inspire us to pray and fast because you are a sustainer, because you are the one that we love and adore. And so God, we thank you for your gift of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.